welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Keely Barber, media editor at Digiday. And I'm Tim Peterson, senior media editor at Digiday. So Tim, you had the episode this week and you spoke with Dominique Shelton Leipzig, who is a partner at the law firm Meyer Brown. First question for you, how come you wanted to have a lawyer on the podcast? <laughs> yeah, I needed legal counsel now. Um, Dominique, Dominique's someone who is an expert when it comes to privacy, especially as it relates to data management and ad tech at Mayor Brown. She's the lead for global data innovation as well as ad tech privacy and data management. And so she's someone that I've been speaking to for years about you know, California's privacy law, for example, and then how that's progressing this, the overall um, privacy regulation picture. And it's great to talk to her right now because that privacy regulation landscape is getting pretty active. Everything from in California with um, the new enforcement agency putting out draft regulations to uh, Congress introducing yet another federal privacy bill. Um, this one, the American Data Privacy and Protection Act in June. And then um, in Europe, there's been the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act, which also has some provisions in there that would regulate targeted advertising. So it's just a, you know great to have a conversation with Dominique to hear an expert's insights on how the privacy regulation landscape is shaping up and what that portends for the digital advertising industry. Got it. Yeah, for sure. So maybe narrowing it down quickly to that like American Data Privacy and Protection Act. I'm curious if she had any thoughts on if that will accomplish kind of what the digital ad industry in the U.S. hasn't really been able to do thus far, but then also whether or not she sees that getting passed at all. Yeah, I think she, like probably most people, is reasonably skeptical of Congress um, agreeing on anything. But she did point out that some... um, Areas where Democrats and Republicans had like historically disagreed when it comes to federal privacy law are kind of sorted out a little bit in this one. Like, for example, there's been a big um, contention of, okay, if there's a federal privacy law, should that preempt state privacy laws like the California Consumer Protection Act? Um, or should a California Consumer Protection Act still take precedent um, when it comes to the, you know, protecting the privacy of residents of California. In this case, it's kind of, there isn't a clear cut answer, unfortunately, with this bill, um, because it would preempt states laws, but there's a carve out for California. um, And there's some other nuances to it, because this is the law, nothing can ever be that cut and dry. Um, But this, I think this bill does indicate like, Congress is still trying to get some sort of privacy law passed. um, And that it's not just the Congress in the U.S., but, you know, obviously states are still passing privacy laws or strengthening their privacy laws, as is the case in California. And then internationally, too, like Europe's GDPR, but keeps passing laws like Digital Markets Act and Digital Services Act, that internationally just the privacy regulation is getting a lot more stringent, it seems. All right. Well, it sounds like you guys have a lot to get into, so I'll let you take it away. Cool. Thanks, Kayla. Dominique Shelton Leipzig, welcome to the Digiday Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, Dominic, you and I have been speaking about privacy regulation for years at this point. Um, and there's been a good amount of activity in that time. California Consumer Privacy Act, for example, was passed you know, a few years ago uh, in 2018. But it feels like in the past month and a half, 
there's been a whole like new level of activity with um, respect to so the new version of the California Consumer Privacy Act or the amended version, uh, California or privacy the rights California Act. Privacy Rights Act. Um, their draft regulations now with that, the advertising industry has some issues with those regulations, which we'll be able to talk about. There is the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, um, which was proposed in the US um, about a month ago, um, and then kind of you know has been moving its way through the House committees at this point. And then Early July, Europe passes the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act, both of which have provisions related to advertising. And then also GDPR, kind of the original of these big, you know, sweeping privacy laws. Enforcement seems to be stepping up with GDPR as well. So a lot for us to get into here. Uh, you and I are both based in the U.S. A large base of our listeners are on the in the U.S. So I kind of want to start with the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, which is the latest bill proposing a federal privacy law for the U.S. There have been plenty of such bills proposed over the past decade, and none have passed into the law. Is there anything that stands out to you about this latest bill? Well, I think there's momentum, Tim, and whether it happens this time uh, or it happens a year from now, what we're seeing is serious bipartisan effort uh, with this bill to try to put something forward to create what uh, Europe has been clamoring for us to have, what uh, a business in the U.S. has been uh, increasingly calling for is uniform standards around privacy so that uh, we can start building into uh, the future. One thing that stands out to me with this bill is that a lot of you know the privacy laws, California, the CCPA, for example, has been primarily opt-out. This seems to be more opt-in where there is a um, kind of provision in there talking about the right to consent and that, you know, for example, people would need to give consent before their data could be used for targeted advertising. Does that, is that a shift to you? Yes. And we've been looking at this for a long time. You and I, Tim, have been talking about the increasing trends uh, around privacy and ad tech and targeting. And I I would venture, I you know, haven't actually said this except on this podcast, that a big part of the fuel uh, surrounding uh, the this movement around data privacy and this heightened awareness around data privacy, uh, from where I am sitting looking at this over decades, it, it just appears to be focused on ad tech and uh, profiling and targeting. That's what is actually the trigger for a whole host of other related uh, 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 proposals, legislation, regulation, enforcement, but um, sort of the canary in the coal mine or what is triggering all of this attention is uh, the the digital advertising uh, ecosystem, which isn't shifted, as you know. Right. And with that, like, so that's the trigger for this, you know, regulation and increasing legislation. What's the trigger for advertising to then become that catalyst, be that trigger in and of itself? Was it the Cambridge Analytica scandal for Facebook? I think it even, it started even before then. Um, So sort of, I'm looking at this from uh, back in 1998 when I was working for a 
small law firm that did a lot of work for one of the major uh, tech companies that still exists. Uh, and it was one of the first um, privacy spate of privacy class actions and uh, FTC investigations. Um, and that's where I kind of cut my teeth. And that was based on uh, sort of the privacy advertising anonymity issues. We're still seeing that today. That was back in 1998, some of the first FTC actions. And then if you look at the arc, uh, when the FTC started doing guidance on behavioral targeting in 2007 and 2009, uh, you can almost start seeing this drumbeat or um, a heightened angst around the digital advertising ecosystem and how how or whether it was transparent enough to users about what data is being collected. And so um, I represent companies that are in the business of digital advertising. I mean, and I think every, every company right now has to have a digital advertising strategy, but relaying the value proposition from a consumer centric point of view is the trend. And there's really been, you know, yes, we can look at the Cambridge Analytica and other things as well. But it's really been a tsunami effect starting, I see, from 1998 and then really accelerated, frankly, to this moment where we are now, where we are still winding our way through or towards the end of a pandemic, hopefully, uh, although I just read about a surge. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, uh, there is heightened dependence on data and everybody knows it. And so there is a concern about, hey, are these advertising profiles that are being created, could they be sold for credit purposes, insurance purposes, employment purposes? Uh, is it, And now, uh, with what we've got going on in our country with uh, Roe, uh, you know, is this location data, personal information, health data, prescription data, et cetera, is that information that can be in all good intention, subpoenaed uh, in a grand jury subpoena in criminal proceedings. If I entrust this with the company I know and the back end companies I don't know, and those are the things going through consumers' minds, um, and they are increasingly going through legislator and regulator uh, minds because consumers. I think I think this is a ground up, not a top down movement from from what I've seen. Right. And it, it does seem like because, you know, the advertising industry often will make the case of, well, we're using this data for targeted advertising. And, you know, their implication being this is a pretty benign use case. And then there's always, you know, the argument that industry people make of people like targeted ads. We don't have to get into that discussion because that's a whole ball of wax of its own. But it seems like what has kind of shifted, and and in my mind, I think I kind of tie it back to Cambridge Analytica because I think that was the first like big example of, well, this data maybe you know collected and used for advertising purposes, but what happens to it from there? You know, who can get access to it from there, and then what can they do with that? And that seems like it's been more and more on the minds of you know certainly regulators, but even just I think in some respects, the general public of, okay, well, if I'm providing this data, like, 
how do I know who actually will have access to this data ultimately and what can be done with that data? And, and are you seeing anything with like, whether it's the American Data Privacy and Protection Act or the draft regulations for CPRA or what's going on with the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act that is kind of indicative of regulators saying, okay, we really need to put like actual guardrails here beyond just recommendations or options. Yeah. I think we are starting to see the, you know, movement, like you said, Tim, from, um, from encouragement and, uh, and guidance to more clear guardrails, uh, that, depending on the company, you know, there are some ad tech companies that welcome this legislation and clarity so that, that a business can be built because the, the difficulty we're having are in these constant shifting, um, you know, in, in, in an eagerness to try to address this issue, which is, data being collected for one purpose and being used for another purpose or an unintended consequence of data collection. We have now a situation, and I know we're talking to mostly a domestic audience, but I think it's important for people to appreciate there are 150 countries now with data protection laws around the world. So if you're sitting in the U.S. working for a global company, you've got counterparts all across the globe that uh, have to start thinking about data privacy um, and may not even know. I mean, I just saw last week, I think Swaziland just came with their data protection. Law. There, there are so many new initiatives coming out. Uh, DMA, like you mentioned in Europe is big and getting a lot of attention, but it's almost like with all the regulation, there's a minefield for companies um, approaching this space. And so a lot of thought I think has to happen at leadership levels. Because I do think at this point in time, some of these mishaps with data or disconnects about what regulators think and what legislators think and what business thinks has driven or was the catalyst anyway, the beginning of uh, this quarter in 2022 was the catalyst for uh, what has impacted our markets to the tune of 1.3 trillion of market cap in NASDAQ going out the door. So these are real jobs, real healthcare, real life, uh, real estate, et cetera, for a lot of people. And so we've got to really be thoughtful and get this right because so many uh, people human beings are depending on us doing this correctly. Right. And as you mentioned, like, I mean, just here in the States, there's a patchwork of different state privacy laws. There's California, Vermont, Nevada, Illinois, you, you know, better than me. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like at some point we're five now and, yeah. and then a bunch of other bills pending across the country. I, I had a map and almost everything was either a bill that had been attempted and uh, wasn't successful this year or bills that are in process. And then you've got the five that have in, been enacted already. So the whole country is looking at this now on a state-by-state basis. Right. And so that's led to like Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg, for example, being among those calling for a federal privacy law. Um, and I think 
I don't know to what extent they've been explicit about this, but like wanting that federal privacy law to then preempt the state's laws because then that'll make compliance easier. Oh, okay, companies just have to worry about complying with the federal privacy law, not the state's laws. But that's not really that's not necessarily the case with the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, where it does preempt states' laws, but then it has all these exceptions, including California's privacy law. And so how feasible, like how how does that complicate the picture if this bill ends up becoming the law, which that's a, another conversation we're going to have to have on like just the likelihood of that. Exactly. Uh, so preemption was a big part of what was stalling progress on the bill. And I think right now we're seeing Republicans and Democrats sort of reaching consensus that it's what I call sort of partial preemption. In other words, there's preemption, but if there are laws that are stricter, and and we've seen uh, there's there's actually um, there's actually a little history on this for other privacy national bills, and so I was always a proponent of yes, it'd be great to get preemption so we have certainty, but with uh, California's privacy law still polling um, in the 90s, you know, 90 percentile approval rating here. Uh, it's almost inconceivable that a large California delegation would go into Congress and uh, take positions against the California Consumer Privacy Act or the California Privacy Rights Act, whether you're, um, you know, Republican or Democrat uh, in in Congress uh, right now, given those realities, uh, it always I always wanted to think about Plan B, and it seems to me that we have other precedent like the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act and um, the Graham Leach Bliley Act for uh, you know uh, financial data and HIPAA for health data, where there is preemption, but not if there is something uh, you know more protective in place. Um, and, and same thing with, uh, can spam. Uh, so that if you have more protective, um, you know, email laws, uh, in place, then the federal can spam law does not permit, uh, uh, preempt those. And that's why California has a fraudulent email statute. That's why California still has, uh, the California Confidentiality of Medical Information Act that is stricter than HIPAA. And we also have our California Financial Information Privacy Act, which is stricter than GLBA. But in the scheme of things, when we think about federal, you know, privacy laws related to financial, uh, or when we think about privacy laws related to financial, we think about GLBA, and we don't necessarily think about California's FIPA. And I just think that if a federal law were to come into play, that would dwarf everything. And I think you would see that California, and I'm talking, we're both talking here from Los Angeles, uh, as much as we'd love to th think of it as the center of the world, it would, with the federal law, it would dwarf what is happening in the States. And all the focus and all the energy is going to shift to federal, uh, even without full preemption, if passed as prologue. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. All of that is contingent on this bill becoming a law. Is there any reason to believe that this bill 
would make it through Congress, especially, I mean, I think a lot's been made of, well, the August recess is coming up. And then a Senator Maria Cantwell has, you know, said she's not so psyched on this. She wants her own bill to be the one that comes through. Um, but there, I think, is some criticisms of that one as well, because there's always criticisms. <laughs> this is politics we're talking about. And then there's the midterm election cycle. And there's, I think, um, I was reading with wicker there's the idea that oh he's going to be moving to another committee and then ted cruz would be taking his spot on the committee that's um kind of behind the american data privacy and protection act and that ted cruz isn't someone who's really taking a strong position on privacy so that would not be a priority so it seems like if it's going to happen it has to happen now but i don't know if there's any indication on like whether there's a likelihood of it happening now what's your read you know, I go back and forth on this all the time. And uh, one of my partners in our uh, DC office, Howard Waltzman, who is working with the Business Roundtable, I, I literally talk to him on a daily basis. Howard, what have you heard? You know, how is this looking? And it's really tough to say right now. Um, I think that there is general, uh, from what I'm gathering, pessimism that this is going to happen in time uh, to to take place this year in in 2022 uh, before midterm elections that uh, the the consensus appears to be like there's momentum and this is a great first start but or, or, or not first start but to actually get you know the the bill and the the uh, edits out and this is a really serious, effort um, that will most likely have to be picked up again in 2023. And the reason for that is a couple things, what I'm hearing. Um, I just heard uh, something that was really disturbing that in light of um, what has gone on with the Supreme Court on the policy issues associated with Roe, that there are some legislators taking the position that if anything comes up on privacy, that they won't vote for it unless uh, that decision is addressed within the context of the bill. Um, and I know that there are efforts to try to disassociate the uh, the Supreme Court issue, which is fresh and new, and we're digesting that from the federal privacy bill that has been on various attempts to get off the ground for at least the past five, six years. <laughs> um, and this is the first serious, you know, run at it. So there's a concern about linking those uh, from certain in the business community. And so that may cool some of the, I think at first it was like business all in on a federal privacy law. But if we start seeing those sorts of things, that might complicate issues. Uh, that's thing number one. Thing number two is that on the business side, there's not necessarily um, a monolith, like, you know, we do need federal clarity here because of some of the things that are in that bill that, um, you know, there's a lot of compromise, but there are some industries that aren't, um, you know, outside of the tech industry that have some concerns. Uh, so I think as a result of those issues, which, you know, I, I hope I'm proved wrong because I think we need a federal privacy law personally, and we've needed one for a super long time in order. I mean, we're the only 
um, of the top 10 GDPs in the globe, we're the only country without, uh, a, you know, an overall data protection law. So, um, and we're number one, you know, and so we should, we should definitely not cede that space to, um, all of the other countries, but, but I just, I'm pessimistic, Tim, that it's going to happen this year. I do think we've got a very good head start for next year. That's interesting. And it's also interesting, like you bring up the the Roe v. Wade context of the privacy law. There was a really good article in the New Yorker recently talking about Roe and it, like I always, you know, was brought up thinking of Roe v. Wade as a human rights issue. Um, But this New Yorker article, like, put it in the context of actually this came about as a privacy rights issue. And it was something where I I think it was like Justice Earl Warren before he became a Supreme Court justice was kind of like put onto the idea of how to regulate privacy or protect privacy. And Roe v. Wade became one of the expressions of that or the ruling on Roe v. Wade became the expressions. Can you go back and kind of like help, you know, distill for me, like why, how Roe v. Wade and privacy kind of intertwine and, and why this the overturning of Roe v. Wade would affect the federal privacy landscape and vice versa, how the federal privacy landscape affects Roe v. Wade, because there is a lot of concern and attention being paid to period tracking apps, for example, be, you know the data being used from there, being used to enforce states banning abortions. Yeah, so... The decision itself, Roe, is based on the right to privacy. And um, and uh, I, I love what you said about privacy being a human right, because uh, that is really, uh, at that level, uh, what nine out of 10 Americans now think uh, privacy is, even you know outside of this context of reproductive health. But that's what, uh, you know, Roe was um, and is uh, still, even even as it's overturned, at core, the legal analysis is uh, based on uh, privacy precedent and the right to privacy. So the overturning of that decision calls into question privacy rights on a bunch of different fronts. And, and, um, you know, you have Justice Thomas's uh, dissent that called out those some of those different areas very explicitly but there's a bunch of other areas and I um I recently wrote a piece uh, along with my partners on the impact that this decision uh this privacy based decision is having on the business world and the business community um and there are some unexpected consequences or un- unexpected fallout that people may not have imagined. Um, so, for example, suddenly, you know, pharmacies and other companies, you talked about health apps, health tech, wearables, could become, um, you know, the recipients of criminal grand jury subpoenas, for example, uh, if uh, there is an interest by a particular state in pursuing um, not just the individual woman, but the caregivers, the doctors, the facilities, et cetera, the prescribers. Um, there's cross, you know, there's dormant commerce clause issues when you're crossing state lines where it's legal to get prescriptions that are, you know, say a doctor is sitting in Illinois or California and prescribes 
uh, reproductive medications to abort a pregnancy to someone in Texas. Um, and you know, the, the prescriptions being fulfilled in warehouses in a state where, uh, it's legal, like a California or a New York, then all of these issues are now on the table and they're really complex, but what's happening is it's pulling in our business community and the ad tech community um, is going to be, I think, very much front and center in this and the types of uh, requests for information about profiles on customers, loyalty programs, et cetera, because uh, those go into purchase habits. So we're already seeing uh, some of these uh, requests and also um, requests for information on the one hand and on the and with the companies in the middle, mind you, uh, you know, governmental requests for information uh, at the state level, and then on the other hand, individual uh, individual customers of that company, whether they're the mobile app, uh, you know, subscribers, or they are the pharmacy customers, or et cetera, scrambling to try to make demands to delete their data, uh, hide their information. And when it's related to some other health requirements like HIPAA and other state medical laws related to retention periods for medical information, that's that ability to just erase your history um, is not something that companies can do while also complying with these state laws that say, hold on to medical records for seven years or five years or six years. In some of the states with trigger bans already in effect. So holy moly, all of a sudden you've got the business community front and center, right in the middle of this Hobson's choice of law enforcement and privacy. And there's also the element to it of the types of data that could be kind of tied together to paint this picture. Like there was that great New York or New York Times article a decade ago, I want to say it was like maybe 2012 about Target and the idea that, you know, there was all this data that, you know, Target was able to collect on, um, I think she might've been a teenager, but like that, you know, could identify that this teenager was pregnant without, I don't even think she was aware. It's been a while since I've read that article, but, and it wasn't information like, oh, she bought diapers or pregnancy tests or anything like that. It was pretty innocuous information on its vitamins own, that, yeah. i know the story yeah and then tied together and and it seems like that kind of gets back to what we were talking about a little bit ago of people coming to realize oh all this data is being collected about me and on in a silo individual pieces of data may seem pretty benign but you start piecing it together and oh, now you can like see where I was. Like you don't necessarily need my location, my geolocation data to know where I am if you can have these three other data points that taken together would give you that kind of thing. Um, and it seems like that's part of the reason why like global privacy control, this um, idea or proposal that there should be a tool for people to be able to opt out at a global level from having their data collected and then used, shared, and sold. Like that 
that's been become a big sticking point with these draft regulations for CPRA, where in the draft regulations, I think it would require companies to abide by something like a global privacy control. And the ANA has come out and said, wait a second, that's not in the CPRA. That's going farther than the text of the law. Now the regulations are getting more onerous. But are you? What do you make of that change? Because a decade ago, there was all the conversation around do not track. Senator Rockefeller passed the do not track bill, or at least proposed it. I don't remember off the top of my head whether that passed. But then there's the new do not track mechanism. But ultimately, no one actually supported do not track. Like you could set it in your browser, but nothing would really come of it. But now it feels like we have come back to do not track being becoming viable or at least seemingly being on the precipice of becoming viable. Yeah. Well, uh, this is such a good point that you're raising and it's even further complexity because GPC, uh, that particular technology is under consideration in Europe and by the W3C and uh, that organization is is trending towards not endorsing that technology there. So, you know, again, looking at companies with uh, global portfolios and trying to figure out when you've got California as the fifth largest GDP in the world, uh, looking at enforcing um, recognition and forcing recognition of GPC. Um, I just will say that uh, frankly, this issue of GPC and recognizing it as an opt-out is, um, and I appreciate what ANA sent out and it's important, but um, honestly, as the way the CCPA has already been enforced, and of course the agency has latitude to do something different than the AG's office, but um, frankly, I think that's going to be highly unlikely. And the AG's office has already been enforcing on that topic. I think you and I talked about that maybe um, a year or two ago, but, um, you know, these are confidential um, uh, notice of violation letters that go out and give companies 30, 30 days to improve. And that 30 days is going away uh, starting January 1st, 2023. So that cushion is not there, but there've already been enforcement actions and companies have had to uh, pull together recognition of GPC within 30 days or face uh, 7,500 per, uh, you know, opt-out signal uh, uh, that hits their website per day. So um, some of this is academic. I mean, it represents a shift because it's in writing. But for those of us on the front lines who've been explaining <laughs> to the AG's office uh, how the client is going to get GPC recognized and how to use one trust to do that, et cetera. <laughs> this has already been happening. So um, a part of it is just really understanding um, that it is highly unlikely to me. I mean, it's my, my soapbox. I mean, it's my personal opinion, not any client or the firms, but I just think the way that the agency and the attorney general's office in California are collaborating and have good relationships, um, that it seems to me that they would, the agency will be building off of what the attorney general's office did. And I don't see a hard turn to the left or right change happening. I think you're going to see enhancing and maybe amplifying, but if 
the AG's office has been saying companies need to recognize GPC when it's on now. Uh, I don't see the agency, whether or not that provision is in the regs, um, doing something different with CPRA suddenly in January 2023. Got it. Okay. And not... I don't think this is like that much of a hard turn, but turning to the Digital Markets and Act and the Digital Services Act, like both of those are, I think it's the Digital Services Act is like pretty prescriptive when it comes to targeted advertising and saying, okay, these are the types of data that cannot be used for targeted advertising. A lot, I think a lot of those are like based on race, ethnicity, I want to say gender too, basically like categories that can be used for exclusionary advertising, you know, promoting job openings only to people who are of a certain race or, you know, making sure that people who are of a certain race are not able to see those job, you know, postings. That's, you know, been something where historically, like, I think it was ProPublica showed how Facebook's ad tools could be used to be discriminatory with advertising, you know, jobs or housing and Facebook's made um, changes to prohibit that kind of thing. But with the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act, what's most important to know for companies in the advertising industry, whether on the buy sides, the sell sides, or the ad tech side, in terms of what this will change with respect to targeted advertising? Yeah, you know, uh, I think the Digital Services Act, the DMA, what we're seeing with CPRA, and it's important to listen to the proponents and the and the folks behind um, those initiatives. And essentially, what they are pushing for is a dwindling or a narrowing or an eradicating, frankly, of profiling based on sensitive categories of information and also really trying to break the model of third-party targeting. Uh, that's, I mean, I don't see anything short of trying to destroy that business model. So what I am excited about are um, opportunities to think about how can we, in the ad tech community, uh, take this um, take this information and pivot to the future. I'm excited about the first party initiatives that are out there, the uh, owning your audience, the transparency around the value proposition that companies are actually bringing with the targeting uh, that they are creating. And I, I am almost um, thinking that for the leaders, right, um, that there needs to be at the, at the highest levels of the ad tech ecosystem, um, CEOs, board members, I think some serious um, reimagining needs to occur. And that's going to lead to a renaissance in the business. And I think we're going to see a lot of um, amazing um, advertising happening around things like, um, you know, 
contextual advertising, synthetic data, um, algorithmic, um, you know, using algorithmic prototypes that are not on sensitive data, but that can replicate certain things and, and, um, and then be able to still provide offerings in a way. Because, I mean, the thing is, is that what you're pointing out with the Digital Services Act can also harm uh, some of the, in a diverse society, can, you know, if we're not able to do certain things based on sensitive categories like race, gender, sexual orientation, well, gosh, how are we going to be able to make opportunities and account for, uh, you know, balance uh, certain things and, and have algorithmic fairness, maybe, you know, um, go beyond avoiding bias, but actually achieve fairness with data. And that will require intentionality and some knowledge about sensitive categories. So this is a really um, big difference between, say, the U.S. and Europe, where we have this highly diverse society um, with our Gen Zs already being uh, majority diverse at this juncture. So we'll, we'll need to find different ways to deal with the sensitive data. Right. And with that, um, and, and we can kind of, you know, end on, on this topic because I know you have better things to do than be talking to me. I, I love to talking to you. This is so great. <laughs> but like with the, the categories of you know, sensitive personal information, I think this is in CCPA or at least was in CPRA. Um, it's also in, um, the uh, American Data Privacy and Protection Act, where you know unique identifiers, device-based identifiers, are considered sensitive personal information, and so that means that includes IP addresses, which affects the whole connected TV ecosystem because the IP address is basically the connected TV version of the third-party cookie, and I imagine it also affects these replacements for the third-party cookie. Uh, UID 2.0 or like live ramps um, proposal or you know other tools that are unique identifiers is is that the case because obviously I'm you know a layperson here you're, you're the expert I think you're you have said it spot on Tim that um, one of the biggest I guess disconnects I have seen in the past is that there was the belief in the ad tech community that unique identifiers were not personal information even, uh, let alone sensitive information, because uh, because that's how we were we were taught that, you know, personal information is names, emails, addresses, health information, et cetera. And device IDs and persistent identifiers were not personal information. And there's all kinds of codes, you know, um, NAI, IAB, others, you know, that, that made that really clear. Um, the, there has been a disconnect though, uh, because those guidance documents were originally conceived before the legislators and regulators got involved. When that started happening in the late, you know, I would say 2016, 17, 18, when we started really seeing legislators and regulators around the world getting involved with digital marketing and having opinions about personal information being associated with persistent identifiers, whether it's unique device ID, whether it's an ad ID uh, that's associated with an individual um, device, um, whether it's a, a device ID that's associated with a household. I mean, 
once regulators started seeing it that way, the view, the codes of conduct where we were calling it non-PII, when regulators and laws were saying it is PII, uh, created this disconnect that um, I think still persists today. And so right now, it's uh, there is a shift, there's a change, and this has been going on for a while, but persistent identifiers are considered personal information. And when they're going to be associated with race, gender, health, et cetera, um, you're right in the sensitive category. And, and uh, whether a name is ever associated or a photograph or a home address is ever associated with that profile. So um, that's the new world we're in, but I still think there's a ton of, of marketing that can still happen. I'm going to say it this way. I call it the get out of jail free card or what will allow all this to happen is consent, is the opt-in um, mechanism. And when people understand, I think we haven't been doing as good a job as we could in the ad tech community to explain the value proposition from the consumer point of view. Why is this good for you that we collect this information? It's going to make life easier. It's going to make your healthcare smoother. It's going to, you know, your children's education faster, whatever it is. Um, we need to articulate that to get that consent for some of these more sensitive areas. And then for the others, uh, we're, we're looking at contextual and uh, we're looking at a contextual and synthetic and, and non-PII, real non-PII methods. Um, and I, I'm excited about it because I just think there's a lot of growth. That's a market that's untapped. And I think there's going to be a lot of, um, uh, I think you're going to start seeing things going into that you know, multi-trillion dollar club for companies once they um, stop holding on to the past and move into uh, where we are today. Right. And then, then there's that fun interim period for me of the transition, which can get very messy, but then as an outside observer, just gets to be uh, fun to follow um, and also gives me plenty of reasons to be reaching out to talk with you, Dominique. So I'll leave it there for now. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Always great talking with you. Great talking with you. And thank you for having me, Tim. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for listening to the Digiday Podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like. We'll be back next week with another episode.